So just a brief overview, uh, I'll be talking a little bit about the University of Melbourne, um, a brief introduction to the guidelines and regulations that uh, cover responsible research and research integrity in Australia, um, some examples of our approach to uh, addressing the challenge of bringing these principles into practice, and then some of the challenges that we face uh, locally, but I imagine are similar uh, regardless of the, the sort of geographical location of the institution. So the University of Melbourne was established in 1853, which probably makes it about as old as some of the professors here at Oxford. It has uh, 11 faculties or graduate schools, just over 45,000 students in August of this year, with 40% of those being postgraduates, uh, just over a quarter being international students, which I think for most uh, institutions these days is an important component of uh, income. 10% of those being research higher degree students, so that's PhDs and Masters by Research. We have just under 7,500 staff. We are conveniently located next to the Melbourne CVD, which is uh, sort of here, so it's about 10 minutes walk down from uh, our office building to the Queen Victoria Markets, which is just sort of in here somewhere, which is uh, nice and handy if you're interested in switching institutions. <laughs> the academic structure of the university, there are 11 uh, faculties and graduate schools <coughs> covering the sorts of things that I imagine you'd expect to find in a broad research institution, so I won't go through the list. Um, medicine, dentistry and health sciences is definitely the largest of those faculties at the University of Melbourne. It has or, or collects or gathers about half of the university's research income. Uh, and is big enough these days to be uh, a small, smaller university in its own right. If, if that was to be the case, it would also be a member of the group of eight universities in Australia, which is equivalent to the Russell Group. So that's sort of uh, clearly the biggest part of the university in terms of research activity. Just hope that no one from the other faculties listens to the recording of this. The structure's undergone a bit of a change in recent years that the university's changed its curriculum uh, from having something like 96 undergraduate degrees uh, with the aim of, in a couple of years, to reducing that down to six really broad new generation undergraduate degrees. Uh, and a shift of some of the, the sort of the faculties that are listed here to offering graduate only courses. So medicine and law, for example, will be offered only uh, as a graduate uh, qualification at the university. That's been a little controversial and is um, having some interesting results on uh, sort of application rates for, for school leavers at the university. Not as bad as I think we uh, first thought they might have been, which is encouraging. So research income and rankings. In 2008, uh, the university uh, bought in $382.5 million uh, in research income and had a total expenditure of just over $650 million. The total budget is approaching $1.5 when you include all of the other activities and, and staff costs that the university has. This income uh, and expenditure makes it the second largest research and development organisation in Australia, behind the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, a large collection of government-funded laboratories. The all-important university rankings which mean much more than they probably should. Um, again, we'll, I might have to edit the podcast after saying that, but we'll worry about that later. Uh, it's ranked number 73 in the uh, Shanghai Jiaotong Index for 2008 uh, and 36 in the Times Higher Ed Supplement in 2009. So not uh, surprisingly, this is the one that we talk about most, even though we're concerned perhaps a little about the way those rankings are uh, made determined. In most of these rankings we end up being second in Australia behind the Australian National University, it's based in Canberra. That's uh, largely a, a sort of graduate university if you like and so that helps when it comes to, to these uh, rankings. Our ambition is be, to be in the top 50 um, and so again we've already met our ambition or still have a way to go depending on which ranking you choose to look at. We're, uh, as I said, a member of the, the group of eight universities, which is the sort of the, the oldest, most established universities in Australia. Um, in terms of research income and publications and other fairly sort of basic measures of research activity, 
the university uh, is uh, fairly usually uh, ranked number one. One of the things that, that has sort of recently become clear to us is that we've, we're quite broad. There's a lot of activity that goes on across the university and that this uh, breadth is matched by some excellence. So we're not just doing <laughs> lots of things, we're doing lots of things relatively well, which is uh, even better, I guess. So we're one of the 16 universities to be ranked tops in the top 30 across all of the disciplines in the Times Higher Ed sup uh, Supplement. One of only two in the Asia-Pacific region, the other one being the University of Tokyo. So this is, has led to um, some new thinking about the way we promote uh, what it is the university is good at doing uh, what research does the university do that's good? That's been a difficult question for us to answer and certainly if we ask people walking down the street, they uh, wouldn't be able to answer it really. We have a good reputation but there's nothing that we're really sort of, that's flashing in neon lights. So we're uh, developing or establishing some university research institutes uh, around sort of key problems of our time. So these will focus on things like energy, materials, brain research, we have, uh, strangely it might seem we have an institute for a broadband enabled society. There's a reason for that, the government spending uh, $43 billion Australian on improving the broadband network in Australia. And one of our researchers decided that if, we, if someone was spending that much money, then perhaps we should try and get involved to make sure that it's actually going to be used uh, for a good purpose and that there will be some benefits delivered. So that's uh, interesting. There's a, a, about 10 of those that are sort of developing slowly over time as people realise that there's some opportunities to be had by identifying these key themes that the university thinks it does good research in. So I'll talk a little bit now about the Melbourne Research Office, well, which will be familiar to at least one of you in the audience. The Research Office at Melbourne offers operational and strategic support to researchers and university management. So in much the same way as I guess most research services offices are uh, around the world. We have very close working relationships with Melbourne Ventures, which is the, the uh, commercialisation arm of the university, equivalent to ISIS here at Oxford. Uh, our Legal Services Unit and the Melbourne School of Graduate Research. The Melbourne School of Graduate Research is uh, really important for us from a research ethics and integrity perspective and I'll go through why that is a little later on in the talk. There are four groups in the research office. Um, grants and contracts, well, I don't think I need to explain what that group does. Research performance uh, and analysis group which looks after ERA. ERA used to be called RQF, Research Quality Framework and is um, our equivalent of the REF. ERA stands for Excellence for Research in Australia, uh, but I think they worked out that's what it stood for after deciding that ERA would be the right thing to call it, mostly so they could say a new era for research in Australia. So it's sort of backwards acronymism, if I can make up a word. We have a research systems group uh, which looks after our uh, in-house research management information system, if you like, Themis. Um, they're quite busy. Uh, and finally, but of course most importantly, we have a research ethics and integrity group. <coughs> so this is the group that I look after in the research office and we have responsibilities across the, the uh, implementation um, of the code of conduct for research and research integrity. Uh, we also look after research disputes and research misconduct allegations. Uh, another part of my team looks after human research ethics. We have the Animal Ethics and Welfare Group and an Animal Welfare Officer as part of the team, although the Animal Welfare Officer reports outside of the group, just in case um, he or she gets the feeling that we're not doing the right things by the animals, she can tell someone else. And we also look after gene technology and biosafety. Uh, quite small numbers of staff, which means that we're uh, pretty much busy all the time. We're directly involved in providing advice to applicants, uh, departments and senior university officers. So we're, we're uh, right in there at the coalface receiving calls from researchers asking questions about how to complete particular parts of a form. We need to be these days strategic and operational so we spend a lot of time um, 
working out the best way to try and change the regulations that govern the way the systems we have to look after work, realising that that's um, an important job that needs to be done somewhere in the university and that's one that we think we're charged with at the moment. So some of the sort of uh, questions that I or other people in the group might get asked in uh, the course of any day might be how do I dispose of an unidentified pathogen? I found a uh, tube in a minus 80 freezer, I'm not sure what's in it, but this lab used to work on HIV, so that's an interesting <coughs> question. Uh, how should the university's enterprise agreement, so the workplace uh, deal, be changed to accommodate funding requirements like uh, handling allegations of research misconduct? And then uh, this is not actually made up now that I think about it. Should the university still work with non-human primates? Primates. So there's the sorts of things that we're uh, addressing are uh, high-level policy uh, questions for the university, as well as dealing with the sort of day-to-day -day management of committees. <coughs> In terms of scale, uh, we don't have any numbers about how many research disputes or misconduct allegations we might receive at the university in any one year, but that will change uh, by the end of next year when we start monitoring these things more closely. Uh, it would be probably fair to say that we have, say, uh, one to three uh, serious allegations that require formal investigation a year. The Human Research Ethics uh, team manages 1,800 uh, approved projects. So there's 3.8 of them looking after 1,800 approved projects. Our animal ethics team has uh, 700 approved projects on their books uh, and gene technology and biosafety, which is uh, part me and one other person, we have uh, 350 approved projects for work with genetically modified organisms uh, and about 150 certified laboratories, containment laboratories for work with these things. Um, so we're kind of busy. I thought I'd throw in a couple of uh, cultural observations while I was here. The first one, uh, it took me, I still haven't worked it out, so we can talk about this afterwards, but I still haven't worked out how to respond to, you're all right, mate, because uh, in Australia we only ask that if someone's face is falling off, if they're in, bawling in tears, sort of rolling around on the floor, are you all right, is a serious question. So what, when this was first uh, asked of me in the first couple of days here, I thought I must look awful, I must be incredibly jet lagged. Or am I, like, is my ear bleeding? Is, uh, is there something you're really trying to tell me? Uh, it ended up, I've just responded by saying, yep, which seems really <laughs> uh, brief and a little bit rude, but uh, it's avoided any self-consciousness on my uh, behalf. So if you have any advice about how to respond to that correctly, um, please send it on. I'm only here for another three or four days, so I may have missed my opportunity to respond properly, but we'll try anyway. <clears throat> so the rules and regulations in Australia that, that govern research integrity. The main one, uh, which is relatively new, it was released in 2007, is the Australian Code for the Responsible Conduct of Research. It was developed by um, the National Health and Medical Research Council and the Australian Research Council, which are the two big funders of research in Australia, and Universities Australia, which is the, the sort of uh, representative or lobbying group of all universities in the country. It's in two parts. Part A advocates and describes best practice for both institutions and researchers. Part B is the, the more controversial section that uh, describes the process which institutions <laughs> must follow in assessing or handling an allegation of research misconduct. There are still some quite substantial problems with the way um, we're being expected to implement that part of the code and I'll talk about those later on too. So I thought, um, it might be worth having a look at what the definition of research misconduct is in Australia. Fortunately, it includes fabrication, falsification and plagiarism, or deception in proposing, carrying out or reporting the results of research, and a failure to declare or manage a serious conflict of interest. It includes avoidable failure to follow research proposals as approved by a research ethics committee, particularly where this failure may result in unreasonable risk, to harm, risk or harm to humans, animals or the environment. It also includes the willful concealment or facilitation of research misconduct by others. So that's fairly interesting. As someone who uh, started off looking after research ethics, I'm kind of pleased to see that um, failure to follow the, the uh, conditions of approval could be considered research misconduct. We have to be sensible about how, about how we interpret that though, if we have some um, 
anthropologists who have approval to go and interview the lost tribesmen out near Ayers Rock. And they get out there and realise that if they ask the questions that they have approval for, they'll be doing great damage to the community and offending everyone. Then I would consider it uh, more unethical if they asked those questions rather than changed uh, and did something that wasn't approved in their, their uh, ethics uh, application. <clears throat> the willful concealment or facilitation of research misconduct by others is an interesting one as well. Um, it's about how you define willful concealment. So if you know that someone else is, has done the wrong thing, are you being willful in not telling anyone or do you have to be asked if someone's done the wrong thing? Is that willful? Any comments? <laughs> Any advice you can give me? Still working that one out. So it goes further to say that an act uh, relates to misconduct if it involves all of the following. So for the NHMRC or for the Australian Code, uh, these three criteria <coughs> have to be met. There needs to be an alleged breach of the code, so the, the things that are covered in Part A, and I'll go through those shortly. There needs to be intent and deliberation, recklessness or gross and persistent negligence, and there needs to be serious consequences, such as false information on the public record, or adverse effects on research participants, animals or the environment. We've spent uh, probably too much time trying to uh, come up with ways to break this definition and it's relatively easy. Uh, you could say that uh, as an, uh, an author of a paper, if I spelt your name incorrectly on the authorship line that I'd committed research misconduct because it's a breach of the code, I haven't attributed the, the, the author correctly, name spelt wrong, uh, it was reckless and, and probably negligent of me to spell your name incorrectly. And there are serious consequences because there's now false information on the public record. That doesn't make sense to consider that that sort of accident should be research misconduct. But uh, where there's a definition that's probably as open as this, you'll always get some people who are trying to make a mountain out of a molehill and turn something that really is an accident into something uh, much more serious. Having said that, I don't think there's much, uh, it's fairly clear, I think, when something is research misconduct. And I don't know that there's, there's much worth uh, spending much more time deciding how the definition could be better refined. That's just me, though. Research misconduct is also considered to, being, to have been committed if you repeat or continually breach the code might also be considered to be research misconduct. Honest differences in judgment or errors made unintentionally do not. So maybe that's the, the get out of that accidentally spelling someone's name wrong. There are two really important parts of the code from my point of view. The first one are the requirements for, for authorship at the University of Melbourne. Um, authorship disputes make up, although we don't have the numbers, we know that the biggest chunk of the sort of research disputes we deal with are related to authorship. And uh, so whether I should be on the paper or not, or whether I should be first, second or third author, for example. The code says that in order to get an authorship credit, you need to have made a significant contribution by, uh, or be involved in the conception and design of the project, in the analysis <coughs> and interpretation of the data, uh, and, uh, or in drafting substantial parts of the publication or critically revising it so as to change the interpretation. So it has to be a big contribution, a proper academic contribution to the paper in order to be considered an author. You can't be given an authorship for providing materials, for collecting data, or by virtue of a relationship or position. So ghost or honorary authorships are ruled out. Uh, our advice is, and it doesn't happen anywhere near often enough, is that people, researchers, discuss um, authorship and acknowledgements before the research gets started. There needs to be a research agreement uh, an authorship agreement uh, at least drafted before research gets underway to avoid the sorts of disputes that happen when someone sees a draft paper for the first time uh, and decides that they really should be on it but they're not. The other thing that I think is, is uh, really important and uh, being here for, for a month spending the time thinking about research data and records really has clarified this for me that making sure that you're keeping track of the data that you're generating uh, and the information around that data, so the research records, the metadata, if you like, is critical. 
really, really important. Otherwise, it's, yeah, you just don't know what you've got. These are the sort of data that people generate um, is very valuable, in, in, even just in terms of uh, sort of person hours generating the data or the equipment used. Not being able to know what it might be uh, a secondary use for the data also means that there's sort of hidden value in that data. It's not ever clear what else the data might be used for, so it's important to know what you've got and make it available to others. For an institution, managing the, uh, the types of things that constitute research data, so it might be outputs from um, a DNA sequencer or chunks of uh, pottery collected from the, the Mediterranean Sea, that could be uh, considered to be research data as well. How an institution handles that uh, is uh, an incredible challenge. I think making sure that there's clarity about the difference between research data and research records is also important. I think for a lot of the, the sort of uh, scientific or uh, scientific and technical research, the idea of keeping a laboratory notebook <laughs> is a familiar one. Uh, and that's really your research record. It describes what you've done and you'd be able to work out how much time you spent on a particular project, hopefully, by going through a laboratory notebook. The idea that uh, someone in um, archaeology, for example, should keep track of what they've done in a research journal to the people, to the archaeologists that I've mentioned it to back in Melbourne has been particularly offensive. Um, so uh, one of them suggested that if we, we wanted to do that, we might as well just implant electrodes in her brain. I could give it a go. I could probably wangle ethics approval for it. See how it happens. <laughs> but it's a challenge. I mean, we still have, as, as there's more collaborative research happening in humanities and social sciences, there'll be more authorship disputes. There's not that sort of uh, culture of keeping track of what it is, uh, of the research that you've done. Uh, and so I think some sort of research journal for everyone who's doing research uh, is a good idea. The Australian Code and the University Policy on the Management of Research Data and Records says that all data needs to be kept at least five years from the date of last publication. It makes it a responsibility of departments to keep a data registry so that uh, academics um, need to list uh, the data that they've generated um, where it's stored and when it should be disposed by. That's the schedule and authorisation for disposal. We're currently doing a lot of work on developing a central data registry for the university so that we, we've got uh, some institutional knowledge about the data sets that we have, uh, who owns them and uh, what they are. This will help us as we start heading towards the idea of data sharing and open access is a relatively new one uh, in Australia, but if we don't have something like this set up, then I think it's gonna be very hard for us to meet any of those requirements and get any of the benefit, the sort of unexpected benefit from being able to share the research data that we've generated. So other areas that are covered in the Code of Conduct um, include supervision of research trainees. So there are some responsibilities on the institution to have some programs in place to um, induct uh, research higher degree students or research trainees uh, into the university and this should include telling them about research ethics and integrity. Conflict of interest, uh, peer review, so that you should be participating in peer review wherever you can and doing a, a proper honest job of it. Some requirements for research collaborations and this is uh, a lot to do with making sure that there are in agreements in place that cover the other areas of the code of conduct. So authorship, data sharing, who's, uh, who's responsible for the data when the project finishes. There's also some um, relatively friendly statements about publication and dissemination of results that you <coughs> just sort of ask you to publish things as, as soon as you can and make the results available uh, in as many different formats that are as a, uh, appropriate. So this is one, uh, this one's for you if you ever come to Australia. If someone says to you, kiss a squeeze, uh, there's no need to be offended uh, or call the police, it's not in any way uh, a threat or suggestive. All, all you're really being asked is, may I please have a look? For some reason that no one can, well, no one that I know can explain, a squeeze is sort of Australian slang for uh, look at something. So there's no need for concern. If you uh, kiss a squeeze, it's all right. It's similar to uh, how you going, which 
I've, I can, I sort of have seen a similar look to that I must give when someone asks me if I'm all right. Because I say, how are you going? Well, I'm walking. How else would I be going? It's not an inquiry about a mode of transport. It's really the sort of Australian equivalent of you're right, mate. Okay. So our approach to research ethics uh, and implementing the code of conduct for research uh, at the University of Melbourne. This is one of the slides that's at the start of all of my presentations to, to researchers at the university. Uh, and it's about where I think these requirements come from. I think it's important that researchers understand that these are responsibilities um, that the whole everyone in the institution has uh, when it comes to the conduct of research. So because a lot of the research that happens at the university is funded with public money, the general public, uh, taxpayers, have a right to expect that the money is being expended responsibly, that we're not doing things, uh, unreasonable things to animals, humans or the environment in the conduct of our research. <coughs> the research community more broadly, so not only within the university but also in an individual researcher's discipline, will have expectations on the way that research is conducted too. So there'll be some discipline specific practices or well, yeah, practices that you'll need to follow in order to be accepted as part of that research community. Out of the two of those and from other places come rules and regulations, the sort of the, the bits with teeth, if, if you like, that make you do, require you to do some particular things. The only spot where we think that we should have research conducted is that tiny little bit of overlap in the middle there where all of those three uh, sets of expectations and requirements are met. The challenge is though that these aren't the only things obviously that the researchers need to consider. Having some time to actually do research uh, would be a benefit for them, no doubt. Having more time would be even better. There'll also be knowledge transfer, intellectual property and commercialisation requirements that researchers need to manage. They've got to talk about their results, so that's time for preparing publications, posters and attending conferences. They'll have some teaching and supervision responsibilities properly, probably, that will need to uh, be kept track of. They'll probably also have some departmental responsibilities, so they might be chair of the local safety committee or the uh, PhD coordinator in their department. Uh, and I guess if there's any time left over, it might also be nice for them to have a life. That was, that's, no? Not a realistic expectation? <laughs> it's a nice idea anyway. So, and when we think about personal integrity, these are the sort of four things that pop up. So if, you're, if you consider that someone has integrity, it's probably likely that you think that, uh, that they're honest, that they're trustworthy, you, you could expect them to do a good job of things, that they're lawful, they pay attention to the rules and requirements, and that they show respect these things really aren't all that different from the sorts of requirements that we see in research integrity. So research integrity for me really is just sort of the generally accepted standards of practice for researchers, so the right way to do research, research integrity. It's easy to kind of get a little bit uh, religiously fanatical on this, it's the, you know, the way to the, uh, the bright light of research holiness. Like any community, there are consequences though if these standards aren't met. So if I drive through a red light, uh, I have an expectation that I should get uh, a ticket from a police officer. I'm breaching the standards expected of me by my community. Similarly, if a researcher is not doing the right thing by these generally accepted standards of practice, they should reasonably expect for there to be some consequence. So I think uh, the other thing that I spend a bit of time trying to work out is whether we should be worried more about research compliance as opposed to research ethics and pointing out that there's a difference. Compliance is really the indicator that you intend to do things the right way. You're aware of the rules and regulations uh, and you'll pay attention to them while you're doing your research. Research ethics or research integrity is more to me about actually doing the right thing while you're doing the research and that's why I think it's really important that there are clear statements about the expectations on researchers. So research integrity to me is not just about not doing the wrong thing, but actually about doing the right thing. And that makes it uh, a harder job to sell sometimes, I think. All this together means that I think compliance is the wrong model for promoting research ethics and integrity in any institution. 
it's not to say that compliance isn't important. We have to show that we can we meet the requirements of our funders and uh, regulatory agencies. But I don't think it's the uh, it's the way that we should be uh, at the very least selling it or trying to promote the ideas of research integrity to our researchers. So I think the other thing that we spend a, a quite a bit of time thinking and talking about is how to turn the principles that are included in the Code of Conduct for Research into practice. Because they'll mean something different for every different researcher, or at least for every different discipline. There'll be a different uh, interpretation of what these high-level principles are. Initially, they seem, uh, some of the concepts seem abstract. And certainly, uh, when you first, if you went up to a researcher and said, uh, tell me uh, about what you think about research data and records management, their eyes will either roll back into their heads or glaze over and you'll have to, you know, slap them around the face a bit to try and get them back into the room. Once you start talking about it though, they realise that it's a really important concept and that they should be spending more time getting their, their data and records sorted out and that the potential benefits of having that uh, right from the start uh, are large. So the challenge is to make these principles real to researchers. Um, and so I think sometimes the way we describe things doesn't help that. Fabrication, falsification and plagiarism somehow sound a little more noble than just lying, cheating and stealing, which is really what they are. So that's how, yeah, lying, cheating and stealing really, to me, uh, makes it much clearer that they're not the right things to be doing. I think these, are, these sorts of, the, turning the principles into practice is best achieved through uh, discussion and education rather than just ticking a box. So that's the ethics versus compliance model again. Just, you know, ticking, uh, I have read the Code of Conduct for Research doesn't really mean that they have any idea uh, <coughs> what the key messages of the Code of Conduct might be or how they'll implement those in the course of their research. So the way we're approaching it, Melbourne, is to try and lock some of these high-level principles away into policy. So there are, you know, uh, all researchers at the university will keep their research data for five years after the date of last publication. We then expect and are getting, heading towards requiring that our faculties elaborate on these policies so that they make more sense for their researchers and then maybe also expect that departments will do the same thing so that there'll be a local discipline specific version of the policy that offers some practical, relevant, discipline specific advice. I think that's a good way of getting the message down, uh, but I also think it would be really difficult and unwise for someone in a central research office to try and write a policy that covers every sort of research. It's just not going to work that way. I think this is one of the ways, uh, and to me one of the, maybe the easiest, maybe not, uh, ways of closing the gap between uh, a principle and actually getting something working at the researcher level. It's important though that there's opportunities for people to develop things at the local level. One of the things that the, the Australian Code of Conduct for Responsible Research requires us to do is improve the culture of research ethics integrity at the university. Uh, I'm a non-practicing microbiologist, so the sorts of cultures that I'm used to thinking about are slightly different to those that I think the code was referring to. But it was kind of uh, useful for me to think about it this way, at least for a moment. So when you're growing a microbiological culture, you add a small number of cells to some fresh growth medium. Uh, they'll go through what's called the lag phase, where they kind of adjust to the situation and work out what sort of food supply they've got. Then they'll go through an exponential growth phase, which is really good. They sort of dividing, if, you know, every 20 minutes they'll divide into two new cells, if the conditions are right. Eventually though, they sort of start fouling their own environment too much and enter a uh, stationary phase or run out of food. Stationary phase is sort of the diplomatic way of saying the bacteria dies, so the death phase. It's a three-step um, growth graph. You can uh, see some strange things when you look at sort of growth rates. You can, it's easy to, much easier to measure the sort of growth rate of a bacterial culture just by looking at how cloudy the broth is getting that you're growing it in. Uh, and so sometimes you'll see um, a switch in the way the bacteria is growing and it will use up one source of food uh, and then find another one and have a go at that. If you get even fancier, you can start doing continuous culture where you're constantly supplying the right amounts of food, 
uh, and removing the sort of waste products that the bacteria are producing so that things only grow, that we don't enter the sort of stationary or death phase. This is how the sorts of um, microorganisms that produce uh, industrial chemicals uh, are grown. So the big thing that keeps these cultures growing uh, is making sure that anything that's troubling them is removed from their environment. And maybe that's equivalent to allegations of research misconduct. But keeping the food supply right and keeping them growing uh, is the key thing. I'm not sure how well this will actually translate into the real world of researchers who are people rather than who are bacteria. But I'm going to give you an example of some of the, the, the things that we've been doing to try and stimulate the growth of our culture of research ethics integrity at the university. We have uh, a lot of acronyms in these next slides, so I'll take it slowly. For me, uh, really. <laughs> Future Research Leaders, uh, Leaders Program uh, was an initiative of the group of eight universities and got some Commonwealth money to, to develop it. Uh, it's aimed at people who are considered to be p potential heads of departments, really. Uh, and introduces them to uh, lots of the key concepts in the sort of research life cycle. There are eight modules and uh, the people who prepared it have developed a case study that covers all eight of those modules. So the participants can get really involved in it and familiar with the case study and get quite engaged uh, in the conversation. That was a little, sorry, I just heard my own vowels then, quite get engaged in the conversation. It's another home and away moment. Module three is called Governance and Compliance. Uh, surprisingly, even with that title, we do get people attending that session. It hasn't, doesn't, sort of, doesn't sort of scare them off. The case study for module three covers things like data security and confidentiality, uh, confidentiality uh, authorship, ethics, and then at the very end, biological safety. We have them uh, locked in the room for four hours, but we give them lunch, so that automatically means we get higher scores on the, the feedback forms. Once they've gotten over the shock uh, of thinking that they're going to be talking about rules and regulations and forms, they uh, engage remarkably well with the subject material and really enjoy uh, having four hours out of their busy weeks or months where they actually get to think about the sort of professional aspects of being a researcher. Talking about how the principles that are in the codes and that relate to ethics or authorship actually translate into res their research practice. Having the case study there is incredibly useful because it frees up discussion. It means that you can make, ask questions about the people in the case study rather than having to say, uh, the deputy head of my department has done something dodgy. What does the rest of the group think about this? It doesn't stop that from happening. There's still a lot of personal reflection that comes out from these workshops, um, which I think is really useful. ECR workshops, so early career researchers. Um, this year we've called them laying the foundations to try and make them sound inspiring. Not that they're not inspiring. Research ethics and integrity was included for the first time this year. Um, we had an hour and a half. We decided what we do would, would ask the group to build their own code of conduct for research. So we divided the group up into about five or six different uh, small groups and gave them a topic to work on each for about 20 minutes and then reported back. This was really interesting. The group that uh, decided they wanted to come up with the requirements for authorship essentially listed everyone that could be involved in the project. So there were uh, technicians, there were people in the storeroom in their department because they ordered things for them. Um, some of the cleaners made it in. Uh, I suggested that perhaps I should be in there as an author because it was likely that some of my team had been involved in approving the ethics applications for these projects. But apparently that was a step too far, so I was um, <laughs> quite insulted by that, but I'll deal with that myself. So that was really interesting, that, that they thought it should be everyone who's been involved deserves to be an author. We're all uh, friendly and happy, uh, you know, a nice sort of research group. I think by the end of it though, after they uh, read through the code and we talked about how the code requirements actually might make a bit more sense because it's about people who actually make a significant academic contribution getting authorship. Uh, I think they were happy with that. I think it would be fair to say that uh, this was a group of uh, about 35 um, postdocs mostly. Uh, so they, were, they really were early career researchers. 
Not surprisingly, there was some initial hesitation about being, doing a research ethics and integrity session. How boring is that? The discussion went into overtime, so we didn't have afternoon tea that day because they were so engaged with, with the, topic that we were, the, the topics we were discussing. I think uh, in the feedback suggested that a lot of them found it really valuable to be uh, thinking about these high-level principles of research. Uh, and for some of them, it was the first time some of these issues had been raised, which is uh, slightly concerning, but it was the first time they thought about some of these things. It was really useful to be able to, to get a group of 35 postdocs and explain to them how these principles do actually impact on the way their research is conducted day to day. It's making that connection again. I think getting in early is one of the things that we're really focusing on at the University of Melbourne as well, is with future research leaders, uh, early career researchers, uh, and uh, research high degree students. So this is grime, as I call it, when I'm feeling ill disposed towards it, or green, as it's most uh, preferably referred to. It's the Global Research Ethics and Integrity Module. Uh, it's um, <coughs> run by the School of Graduate Research, which looks after all of our PhD and research master students. It was a Universitas 21 initiative, so U21 uh, is a group of 21 universities that collaborate together on uh, particular projects. The idea uh, initially was, I think, to try and encourage exchange between this, this group of universities. Uh, in some respects, it's similar to FRLP, but all of GREEM happens online. So there are eight chapters that cover basic principles of research ethics and integrity like research conduct and authorship and peer review, human ethics, animal ethics, uh, and some of the sort of research frontiers questions. So to get them thinking about the ethics of things like stem cell research. <clears throat> so the, the students will log on, there'll be a, a brief case study, there'll be an opportunity for them to write some comments about their initial thoughts or a bit of reflection. We have some face-to-face -face workshops uh, with the students which they all uh, really enjoy. Well, all is probably going a bit too far, which most of them really enjoy. Uh, and online discussions where, the, where they sort of that open halfway through a week, where they can uh, ask each other questions and debate the topic that the case study covers. Um, every now and then there'll be some expert moderators chipping in to either fire up the discussion or realign it if it's sort of headed off on the wrong path. Um, we found this to be a really useful tool for, for getting uh, well, for two things, for getting the, the concepts, uh, re research ethics and integrity, uh, raised in the mind of people who are uh, just starting out their research careers, also for getting them to think about things that they may not have to. So we have PhDs in philosophy talking about stem cell research. It's a good sort of uh, mind-broadening experience for them, I think. Is that all I wanted to say about that? Yes. One of the things that we're doing that uh, relates specifically to human research ethics uh, is some training in the management of ethical risk. So this is uh, based on the findings of an ARC-funded project called Investigating Human Research Ethics in Practice that was conducted by some researchers in our School of Population Health, uh, Marilise Gilliman and Lynn Gillam. They uh, undertook a survey of 38 human research ethics committees and met with lots of researchers uh, to get their opinions of how the human research ethics process worked, both from the committee viewpoint and from a researcher viewpoint. It was uh, some excellent research that uh, we're in the, the process of uh, implementing the recommendations from their report. The key one was some better training to improve the understanding uh, of the basis of human research mm -hmm. ethics. So why are people being asked the questions they are on application forms? And to consider ethical risks. So it's, um, what happens if you're dealing with a group of people who are attending uh, a mental health clinic uh, and someone declares that they've had enough and they can't take it anymore? How do you respond to that? If you're in there as a University of Melbourne researcher, uh, what are your responsibilities and how should you best respond to that situation to make sure that both you and the participant are safe? The participants observed a real committee meeting uh, and held a moot meeting where they had a couple of one good and one really dodgy application to review and decide uh, whether it should be approved or not. All of the participants, and I can say that with confidence, really was all of them, reported that they had a much better understanding of the process um, around human research ethics and why they were asked particular questions in the application form. 
the bumper sticker uh, from this uh, session was one of the researchers realising that for her, uh, a grant proposal is conceptual, that it's, this is what I'll do if you give me some money, but it's not until you're forced to actually write down what it is you're doing in an ethics application that it makes the research real. This is where you're really saying that I'll interview 150 people using this survey, here are the questions. And so the benefits of that process for her were uh, particularly keen. Uh, very briefly, some of the things, or one of the things that I want to get started on for next year um, is a research integrity toolkit for want of a better uh, frame, frame term. There are about eight or nine topics in most codes of conduct for research. There's probably about eight or nine months when most researchers are in the department um, doing things, being active researchers. So why not have a discussion, uh, a group meeting once a month and discuss one of the topics that's covered in the Code of Conduct for Research. So this is the discussion bit. This is about actually bringing, reducing the principles into practice, if you like, at the research coalface. Can I throw any more cliches in there? Grassroots, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, cool. So that this research integrity toolkit will, will have some sort of guided discussion notes and hopefully copies of the local um, policies that have been developed. Thinking back to the, the culture of research ethics integrity idea, and I mentioned that it was relatively easy to determine the health of a bacterial culture, it's much harder to assess the health of a culture of people. But I think we have to start thinking about how to do that. Uh, maybe a research integrity climate survey, so we, where you ask, you just make some five questions, say, available on the website for anyone who's interested in, ask, in answering them to have a go at, might ask, how comfortable do you feel, would you feel discussing uh, a potential research conduct manager with your supervisor, that uh, matter, with your supervisor. Maybe do that every three or five years just to get an idea of whether there's, whether any of this sort of uh, training and education and discussion that we're promoting is having any impact uh, on, <laughs> on the way things are actually happening at a department or researcher level. I'm running over time, so I'll go through this quickly. <coughs> Some of the problems that we have, the Australian Code for the Responsible Conduct of Research uh, is a guideline document only. It's not a legislative <coughs> or regulatory document, except for NHMRC funded research where compliance with it is part of the funding agreement. So this means that uh, we have, uh, its status is sort of not clear. So we'll have a group of researchers who are funded by the NHMRC who are required uh, by contract to uh, comply with it. Everyone else doesn't have to, it's just there for guidance and that doesn't really make much sense. There are some clashes, particularly with Part B, for handling allegations of research misconduct with internal university policies and with the enterprise uh, agreement that means we can't actually implement some of those requirements in Part B at the moment or we'll get into bigger trouble with more serious uh, consequences. These will be resolved over time, but it might be sort of three or five years before we get everything aligned properly. Not at the moment. So we still have our, the, the university's own code of conduct for research and there are a couple of clashes with that and the Australian code that we need to get sorted out too. There are still some problems with the process for handling allegations of research misconduct. So uh, as an example, it requires that the full legislative protection offered to whistleblowers must be extended to potential complainants. But this means then that because of our local state legislation for whistleblower protection, that we can't tell anyone about the allegations. So we can't let the uh, respondent know that someone has made an allegation. So how can we conduct uh, a, a fair investigation when we, we're not able to get a response from the person who the claim is being made against? Doesn't really work. Because of the university code and the Australian code, we're currently operating under two different definitions of research misconduct which uh, is less than ideal is probably the diplomatic way of putting it. At the moment, the University of Melbourne Code of Conduct for Research says that if there is a deviation from accepted practice or a breach of the code uh, that is intentional, deliberate or reckless and negligent, then that can be research misconduct. The Australian Code has that serious consequence requirement. 
So our first decision when we get an allegation of research misconduct has to be which definition is the right one for us to use. And like I said, that's not really helpful, not terribly helpful. I mentioned before that the definition is also uh, possibly problematic, but I don't think that it's important as uh, some of the, the people we're dealing with make it out to be. We have a similar clash with the authorship requirements in that the University of Melbourne Policy and Code, the uh, International Council of Medical Journal Editors uh, with their Vancouver Protocol um, is different from the requirements of the Australian Code. So in both the University and the Vancouver Protocol, you're able to be uh, awarded an authorship credit if you give final approval for the publication to be published. I'm not sure whether that really isn't uh, enough to, to earn an authorship credit, but that's also not something I'm looking forward to discussing with the directors of some of our medical research institutes who sign off on all the publications and magically get their name on the end of all of them. Um, so if you don't hear from me in 2010, <laughs> that's why. Next year we're planning to review the University of Melbourne Code and we'll address some of these bits where there's conflict. Finally, I think it's fairly, it's fairly clear to me and I think fairly clear to, to most everyone else that there are institutional responsibilities in ensuring that research is conducted responsibly, that are unavoidable, that sort of can't or shouldn't be devolved to faculties, departments or divisions. I think that training and education, the discussion part of this process in the principles of responsible research, research ethics or research integrity is important and critical and probably the only uh, real way of uh, getting anything to change in a culture in terms of the culture of research ethics and integrity. I think that part of that is uh, responsibility on the institution to make really clear statements about the way that research that is carried out in its name is to be conducted. I think that's something that we need to work on at Melbourne. I think part of the problem is that this is uh, promoting research ethics and integrity is a long-term project with sometimes intangible or at least really difficult to measure benefits. It's not like we can say if we spend another 100 grand on um, two new research integrity offices that next year we'll have $200 million more research income. Can't say that. And so I think uh, in some ways that means that the, the area doesn't get enough attention, uh, isn't taken as importantly as it needs to. That's all. Thank you very much for your time.